0: And draw your attention to Ephesians 1 this morning. Ephesians 1. I'll read the entire first chapter. The letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will." so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless this word to our hearts this morning. Lord, there is such... Such an amazing gift that we have described for us here in this passage this morning. Oh Lord, may we understand what your grace is. May we understand what it is to be a saint called, redeemed by you to the praise of your glory. Lord, be with us here this morning. Lord, give us, give us an ability to, to hear. Give us hearts that will hide these truths and these great things from your word away in our hearts, Lord, that we might meditate on them for the rest of our lives. Lord, may your spirit's presence be known here with us this morning as we worship you and as we look to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. quite a passage, isn't it? What I'd like to do is this morning provide an introduction for what I would like to begin as a journey through the book of Ephesians. Uh, I don't know how long to expect expect that this will take. It's not going to be in one morning, trust me. Don't worry. but uh, I would like for us to, to start at least a, uh, a series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, I think it'll be a, of great use to us as a church body and even to us as individuals, uh, no matter what our ages are or where we find ourselves at this point in our lives, but to, to be able to go systematically through this portion of God's word from beginning to end. I know that for me... Uh, to be able to study it and to look at it will be a great blessing. There is so much here in the book of Ephesians. Uh, I'd like to make a suggestion as we start out that, and as we do this, that each of us uh, try and set uh, aside time at least once a month. This will take a while to go through because I won't be preaching all the time and uh, things with work and stuff getting in the way, but I would like for us to, to try and read this uh, during the week, at least the whole book once a month uh, during this time. And the chapter that we're dealing with, try and read through at least once a week, if not every day. There is something to be said for immersing yourself in a section of scripture uh, to to understand it. Uh, it's, it's kind of like... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to, to concentrate on the book of Proverbs and read a Proverbs, you know, a, a section of Proverbs every day. But if, you're, if you neglect the context of where Proverbs is in the Bible and what the whole Bible has to say about its revelation of God and man and, and Christ and, and what he has provided for us, you, you, you miss something. And I fear that we often do that, even in our reading, uh, we We pick certain sections out of books that we love that we go back to, and there's nothing wrong with having sections of of these portions of scripture that we love, but to look at them as a whole, you get a a different view you get a you get a totality of things by doing that and I would like for us to do this uh, by the time we're done. Uh, I trust we will we will be incredibly blessed by this and we will be far more familiar with some of these great doctrines that are found in this epistle. And and I pray that the Spirit then takes that, those great truths, and will further transform us into what the last part of Ephesians deals with. Uh, This letter to the Ephesians has been described as as being a spiritual Mount Everest or the spiritual Grand Canyon. Uh, It has unbelievable heights. There's so much that we can see when we when we reach that point that we're looking from the top of mount everest i've never been to the great grand canyon i would love to but the depths of it you know we want to plumb the depths of what god himself would have us to hear from his holy word written under inspiration of the holy spirit through the apostle paul so i i hope that 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 will be something that we can do together you know, this, this takes us, this, this passage, this, this book to the Ephesians, this epistle, uh, takes us through the great doctrines of God, the, the doctrines of, of God, of salvation, of atonement, of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of man and who man is and what man's need is, the doctrine of reconciliation. There, there's these great biblical doctrines that we find here. And it leads us away from ourselves. That's what I love about this passage of Scripture, this, this book, this epistle here. It leads us away from looking to ourselves or looking to those around us and leads us to look right, square, in the face of Jesus Christ. I believe that systematic preaching through portions of God's Word is extremely important. Uh, this type of preaching is, is often referred to as Lectio Continua. It's a Latin word for continuous reading, and it's been used to describe the the continuous or systematic approach to expositorily preaching through a portion of God's word or books at a time. Uh, This was the method used by many of the reformers and by many of those who uphold the great truths of scripture and the doctrines of grace throughout history. Uh, th- this type of preaching doesn't allow for skipping over portions of God's Word. It doesn't allow us to just take those pet doctrines that we, that we love and rightly love and just focus on them in particular. We have to look at the Word of God in its totality when we preach and when we teach and when we look at this. And that's, that's one of the reasons I, I think that having a yearly system of reading through the Bible on your own is a great way to do that because you are start to finish seeing the unfolding redemptive plan of God throughout the word and the way that it, it, it all seems and fits together and the way that beginning to end, as we talked about last week, our God's plan is unchanging. It's an eternal plan that doesn't change. From Genesis through Revelation, it's one word. It's one book written across hundreds and hundreds of years by numerous authors but all inspired by the same spirit all God breathed and all beneficial to us so you know a lot of times when we when we preach on topics we tend to leave out certain things so this this continued systematic approach of going through a a book of the bible is is needful and I think it's beneficial to us. There's a danger in just pre- preaching topically. And I, I think that we are seeing this in a lot of the churches around today. They pick a topic and it's usually something that impacts society. Well, we're going we're gonna to preach on financial matters. Or we're going to preach on marriage. Or we're going to preach on raising a family. Those things aren't bad in and of themselves. But that doesn't get to the core of what God's Word Wants us to learn. Those are byproducts of learning these things that that are important in God's Word. Um, on the other side of that, we sometimes find that there, are, you know, there are churches that aren't so much on on society or the way that Christians should live, but just on the doctrines. And sometimes there's the error that you you don't have any emphasis on on at all as a result of these doctrines what should the christian life look like so we want to be balanced and going through the word of god in this systematic verse by verse type exposition helps counter some of those tendencies that we have we are not as people tend we don't have the tendency to be balanced we just don't that's the flesh that we deal with we always have certain things that attract us or certain things that we, we don't want to deal with. Maybe it's too difficult. Maybe it's hard to understand. But if we do our preaching and our teaching in this manner, we're forced to deal with those things. So I think that this this would be beneficial to us. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, for those of you who don't, uh, he's, he's one of my favorite preachers from history. Uh, he died probably... 30 some years ago now, I believe, uh, back in the 80s. Um, he, uh, he, he preached through Ephesians, and we are not going to go into this detail, but, but to, to tell you how much is here, he preached approximately 230 sermons on Ephesians. And it filled the volume of it when he printed these, filled eight volumes in, in excess of 3,000 pages. Now, like I said, I don't have the ability, <laughs> nor do we have the time to look at it in detail like that, but that just shows you what a man who is gifted by the Holy Spirit to preach and to teach, and gifted in, give, in, in receiving insight into what the Scripture has, and he would tell you, I'm sure that he didn't even begin to plumb the depths, plumb the depths of what Ephesians had. Unfortunately, we live in a world where monumental efforts are being made to transform man's environment. Uh, We have social programs, we have free education, we have welfare, we have law enforcement, we have pushes for higher minimum wage, we have taxation, we have redistribution of wealth, kind of repeated myself there, but we have job training, we have offender re-education, we have pushes to clean up cities. We have revitalization that goes on in these inner city communities that have been destroyed by poverty or, or other things. And, and some of these programs aren't bad. And, and many, uh, they, they stem from the same ideas that, that are not in and of themselves inherently bad. But they've brought about a reliance upon something. they brought about a reliance upon fellow man. They've brought about a reliance upon government to be the one that is providing what is needed for people in society. They've fostered and perpetuated a belief that the state must be the source of filling the needs and deficiencies that are felt in a society. And what they've done is they've neglected to deal with the truth that those needs and deficiencies are themselves a symptom of something far greater. There's a root cause to these problems. Uh, The need in every facet and every way that we have in this world can be traced back to the underlying and deadly truth of sin. Uh, Man by their sin has incurred a great debt and the payment for that sin, that, that is death. And the guilt that is incurred as a result of that sin leads to death. And it's an eternal death. It's not a temporal death. This is, this is the wages of sin is death. God's wrath is poured out upon ungodliness and the ungodly. This is, this is the penalty that is incurred. The greatest need and the only solution to any and all problems is the removal of that guilt and that debt. The way in which this happens is through the purpose and the plan of God the Father worked out through the person and sacrifice of God the Son and applied by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is in essence what we will see as we dig deep into Ephesians. And when that happens, there is a way in which all these other issues are dealt with. And that's what the second part of Ephesians deals with. Lloyd-Jones, once again, was a medical doctor before he was a preacher. If you're not familiar with him, I would strongly suggest you get familiar with him. Listen to some of his sermons. They are they're available to listen to. Some of his books are, are there to, to read. Uh, he, uh, he was a medical doctor and gave up his medical practice to preach the gospel. Uh, was not looked on highly by many of the people around him because he never went to seminary. Uh, but was blessed by God with a deep understanding of scripture. And a desire and a passion, a burden, I will call it, to reach those who were lost in their sin. He would cure somebody of a medical issue and see that, well, I've, I've given them a little bit longer to live by the medicine that I've given them, but what, what, what has occurred in their soul? There's no change there. They're still just as much a sinner as they were before they got this sickness. And so he, he always talked about that we we have to diagnose the actual issue. We can't treat symptoms. We must go to the actual issue that's at hand. Uh, you cannot treat a symptom and believe that being that being treated by a symptom to be rid of that underlying uh, that that symptom does not cure the underlying disease. You may block that symptom. You may keep that symptom from being felt, but the disease still remains. Man must come face to face with the disease before treatment must be applied. And the disease, in the case of man, may manifest in a a multitude of ways as we see in our society around us. But the diagnosis for all of those things is sin. And sin must be dealt with. Sin must be defeated before the symptom of guilt is removed. If you take away the sting of guilt, and this is what's happening in a lot of our churches today, we're trying to take away the sting of that guilt. We're trying to tell them, oh, it's not that bad. You don't have to deal with sin. That's just, it's just, it's just a sickness. It's just a, you're you're not dead in your trespasses and sins. It's not that bad. You know, everybody else is dealing with it. Or they'll lie and explain that guilt away as something else. But never removing or seeking to remove the actual sin issue that is at the heart of what is manifesting itself. And if we do anything but deal with the issue of sin sin is going to remain. And if sin remains on us, the end result of that is going to be eternal punishment, eternal separation from God in a hell reserved for the devil and his angels. And that is a terrible, terrible predicament. So we must deal with the actual issue. And that is what Ephesians 1 through 3 says chapters 1 through 3, basically deals with, is these great doctrines of man, sinfulness, and what God has done to rescue man from the crisis that they're in. Then, in chapters 4 through 6, Paul applies those doctrines, those providences, those sweet remedies for sin, to our lives and shows us how those truths are lived out in the Christian life through their Savior, Jesus Christ. So I take a lot of joy and comfort in what I find in Ephesians. And I hope as we dig in here, you will too. And I hope that you will you will make it a point to, to read this and become familiar with this, to, to immerse yourself in Ephesians and, and to, to dig into what Christ says here uh, through the word, what the Lord has us to hear, uh, what, he, what he inspired Apostle Paul to, to write to us that we might benefit from it and our lives might be further transformed and be an example and be a salt and a light to those around us and that we may see others saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be rid of this guilt? This is how the Lord reaches people. If we look like the world, no one is ever going to see anything different in us. They're not going to be seeing anything different in our churches than if they were going to a country club somewhere and getting together and having social time. When the Spirit of God works effectually in the hearts of those for whom Christ died, there is something that is transformed. That old heart, if you look back at Ezekiel 36, that old heart is taken out, that 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 heart of of stone. And it's replaced with a living heart. And he puts his spirit within us. And he washes us. he, He cleans us. And as a result of that, that life is something new. And that life is to be displayed. We are to be imagers of Jesus Christ we should reflect, as he reflected God the Father, the expressed image of his Father, as Hebrews said, we should reflect Jesus Christ to the world around us. So let's, let's start here. We're going to go through verse 2, hopefully, this morning. Uh, that's where we're going to get, I think, that, uh, that uh, there's some stuff for us to see here, even in these first two verses. Well, the, uh, the epistle was written... Uh, to the Ephesians. We'll, we'll deal with this real briefly. Um, and we've looked at, at Ephesus, uh, the, the church at Ephesus a little bit in the past and the city of Ephesus a little bit in the past when we dealt with Re- Revelation 2. And if you want to, you can always go back and you can listen to that message from, from Le- Revelation 2, uh, starting with verse 1, where he writes uh, a letter, Christ writes a letter through John to the church at Ephesus. But Ephesus was a major city, had a population of about 250,000 people. Uh, it, it had a lot of religion in Ephesus. Uh, it had an imperial cult, and Caesar worship uh, was, was taking place in, uh, in Ephesus, and that was kind of the norm. There was a, uh, a presence of, of dark magic, I will call it, in, in Ephesus, uh, there was a lot of uh, what I would now refer to as spiritual warfare going on in in Ephesus. Uh, there was a lot of practicing of of magic, um, satanic uh, Satanism, uh, in the worship of all these different false gods and idols. Uh, the root of it was worship of of Satan. That's always the worship of of the root of idols and false gods is the worship of Satan. But uh, we have here. Uh, you know, a, a, a type of of power, a type of of magic that's not sleight of hand magic. This is not card tricks. This is not this is not uh, a sleight of hand type things. This is actual uh, demonic activity taking place in a lot of these places in and around Ephesus in Asia Minor uh, during these times. Uh, if we look at Acts nineteen, uh, just turn there with me, real quick. We're not going to spend. Spent a lot of time here, but in Acts 19, we have uh, a story recounted for us by Luke uh, in verse 11, uh, how that God was doing extraordinary things by the hands of Paul. And I will say once again, what I said back then was that these things were being done by God through the hands of Paul. This was not Paul performing miracles. This was God doing miracles through the hand of Paul. But we have uh, have this this situation here in verse 14, where uh, you know through Paul there were people being cleansed of evil spirits, and there were there were things being done, people healed. Uh, and then and then some of these people, these uh, these seven sons of a Jewish high priest in verse 14 named Skeva, Skeva were doing this. They were they were they were trying to do these same same works even using the name of Jesus Christ, that that Paul was doing. And listen in verse 15. But the evil spirit who they tried to cast out, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. There was a demonic activity that was prevalent in this area. And this demon inside this man saw no authority in the name of Jesus Christ, even being used by these seven sons of Scytha. And the reason why is because it wasn't the Lord doing the work. Through their hands, and they leapt on him. They beat him, and he fled. They fled blind, uh, or excuse me, naked and uh, naked and wounded. But then something happened as a result of this, and this again goes to show you how much demonic activity was in this was in this city. That when when this news was spread all around, verse nineteen, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to about 50,000 pieces of silver. There was a lot of demonic worship, satanic worship taking place in Ephesus. The books were valued at 50,000 pieces of silver. That is representative of about 50,000 days of labor. In this time. That's a lot of books. That shows you how deeply seated this demonic activity was in the city of Ephesus. I interject here and ask you, is that much different than what we see in our world today? A lot of the things that we view as mental health in our society... There are some that are true mental health cases, but I would venture to say, and I'll lean back on the the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones again, in what he dealt with, that the vast majority of these cases are demonic activity cases. This is a a realm that we don't like to talk about, that we don't like to, to deal with, that we don't even like to think about. Nevertheless, when we get further in Ephesians we're going to see that Ephesians tells us that this, this realm is real. It's real. And I think that we have, look, look at what's going on, even in the name of Jesus Christ in a lot of our churches today. I would venture to say that a lot of it is Satan disguising himself as an angel of light versus jesus christ himself even being proclaimed but much less being worshipped so i don't think there's a whole lot of difference between ephesus in paul's day and the world we live in now ephesus had numerous temples to false gods uh the temple of artemis or diana was one of those it was even so large and so grand that it was uh is listed among the seven wonders of the ancient world um there's, there's some speculation, and I'll, I'll briefly address this if you want to talk about it later, we can. But there's some speculation, some of our oldest manuscripts don't have in it to the saints who are in Ephesus. So there, there is some question that comes up of whether this was actually written to the Ephesians or not. And uh, I think that most of those, those speculations have been uh, refuted and refuted well. Uh, I think what this actually was, I think that this letter was meant to be a letter that was addressed to a circular audience, that there was a greater, uh, there in Asia Minor, Ephesus would have been the stopping off point, right? And we see that, uh, that, that this most likely was a letter that was addressed first to Ephesus and then carried on to other churches. And some of the manuscripts may have left the name out by the, Second, third century, almost exclusively, this was this was uh, addressed as the letter to the Ephesians, um, but it most likely was a, was a circular letter that was first sent uh, by Tychicus uh, to be distributed, much like the letters in Revelation that were written to the seven churches were to be distributed. Uh, we refi- we read in Ephesians six twenty one that Paul states at the end of this this epistle, so that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing, Tychicus, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. There is indication that he was the one that would have taken this this letter written by Paul and delivered it to the church. And Paul even tells uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.12, Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Further indication that this was a letter that was probably given to Tychicus by Paul, who was a, was a, was a friend and, and fellow minister with Paul and given to him to deliver to the churches probably throughout Asia. Um, but in the greater scheme of things, uh, this epistle is meant for all of us, uh, for the, the saints in the church at large, uh, the church throughout the world and throughout all times. We uh, re- always remember what uh, what Paul said to second to Timothy in 2 Timothy three sixteen that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness and that's that's it's beneficial to all of us it is breathed out by God and profitable for all of us so we have here uh, this letter to the Ephesians and it it begins by the person who, who wrote it, identifying himself as Paul. Uh, Paul, also known as Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Saul is, is referred to, that's the name that scripture often refers to him prior to his conversion. Um, this, uh, there was a, a phrase in, in uh, Acts 22 where Paul is, uh, is talking about his own conversion experience. And he's talking about the fact that he was a Pharisee, and he's a Pharisee according to his own testimony. He was Jewish. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a persecutor of those who were of the way. In Acts 22, if you want to read that sometime, he goes through and he gives his actual testimony of his conversion, which is previously given to us by Luke in Acts 9. So we have in Acts 9, Luke telling us what happened. In Acts 22, we have Paul in his own words saying what it was that took place with his conversion experience. But let's look at Acts 9, not Acts 22, but Acts 9. And I want to look at this for just a moment because this is, this is uh, I think, will be beneficial to us in understanding the insight that Paul had and that God used in the writing of Ephesians. So Acts 9... And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and all those his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he said in a vi- and he has seen, excuse me, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and he here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name, but the Lord said to him, "Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel." We have here the account of Saul's conversion. Here we see the amazing work of the saving and transforming power of God displayed in the life of Saul. Saul heard the voice of his Savior. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Here Christ tells us that his sheep hear him, and they follow him. They hear the voice of their shepherd, and what do they do? They follow. They are placed into the way of their shepherd when they follow him. No longer following the voice of someone else, no longer going here or there of their own accord or wandering off on their own. Saul, Paul, heard the voice of his Lord. He was given life, He was regenerated by the power of God and placed into the way. The same way he refers to in Acts 22, 4, where he says, I persecuted the way to the death. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And what was the response then? What was the response to this life-giving call that Christ made to the Apostle Paul when he told him to rise and go to Damascus. According once again to his own testimony that we find in Acts 22, and since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. He heard the voice of his shepherd who told him to rise and go to Damascus, and even though he was blind, he rose and went to Damascus. And what did he do? He began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, that he was the Son of God. The very idea for which the Apostle Paul persecuted people of the way, these Christians, before became his message and remained his message until the day That Paul died and he went to prison and he faced hardships and he endured sufferings. Read the list that he gives us sometimes. Whipped, shipwrecked, starving, naked, cold, hungry, beaten, all for this message, all for being in the way. It changed everything about him. He was a devout man before. But he was devout on another way. When Christ called him, he brought him into the way. 1 Corinthians, to tell you how much this impacted Paul's life, 1 Corinthians 9.16 says, For I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity, it is laid upon me. Woe to me if I preach not the gospel. Woe to me if I preach not the gospel. As a result of Christ, what Christ did for him in saving him, he was so zealous for preaching of this truth that he would declare in Galatians eight. but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you any or a gospel contrary to the one we have preached, let him be accursed. Literally, let that person who would preach any other gospel be damned to hell. Those are powerful words. Something changed in Paul. He was constrained by the message of Jesus Christ, so burdened by his call to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, that he referred to himself as an ambassador in chains. Willing to be put in prison for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was the case when he wrote this epistle to Ephesus. He was in prison, most likely in Rome, at the time of this writing. <laughs> Ephesians 6.20 says, "'For which I am ambassador in chains,' that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. An ambassador in chains. I think this is a little bit of a play, a play on words here. He was literally in chains, but he couldn't do anything else but proclaim this message. Colossians 4.3 says, At the same time pray for us also that God may open a, to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. <laughs> the one who would imprison others, as Saul, became the one willing to be imprisoned for that same gospel. There's a change that took place, and that change led to something. That transformation that took place, the truths that Paul now understood. Paul knew a lot of truth, says Saul. Saul knew a lot of truth. He knew the Old Testaments. But when he saw that Christ was the Messiah, when Christ revealed himself to Paul, there was something fundamentally different that occurred. This life that Paul led as a result of the truth of what God revealed to him. And it's by the will of God, going back to Ephesians, Ephesians 1, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Once again, in Acts 9, 13 through 15, we've already read this, so you don't have to turn back, but it says, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He's scared of Paul. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. He is an ambassador of Jesus Christ. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of the Father, by the will of God. It was quite simply the will of God that set Saul to be his apostle. Saul was not seeking it. He was not searching for it. He persecuted it. His, he, was de, he, he was desirous to put those people in prison that followed Christ. His anger burned against those who followed Christ. He was not seeking to be an apostle. But the will of God had other plans. God in his sovereign will and providence which he planned before the foundation of the world chose Saul and worked to bring Saul at that place on the road to Damascus at the point with which Christ would reveal himself to him and call him to be his apostle by his will. Well, the second part of the first verse, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Well, who are the recipients of this letter? Well, they're the saints. You know, unfortunately, we skip over a lot of these salutations when we read these epistles. There's a lot of things I've I've talked about before that we skip over. Uh, We dealt with Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. How many times do you start out in the year to read the scripture and you go to Matthew 1 and you see the genealogy? And you just skip right over it. Well, these salutations in these epistles are much this way. But there's something even here for us to learn. Well, who are saints? This this to the saints. Well, believers are saints. Calvin states that no man, therefore, is a believer who is not also a saint. And no man is a saint who is not a believer. To be a believer then, to be a saint in a biblical way, Means to be set apart, not of our merit, but by the will and the purpose of an eternal and unchanging God. Look with me real quick at John 17, 15 through 19. John 17, 15 through 19. This is Jesus. He's praying the high priestly prayer. Uh, He's about to be betrayed and arrested in the garden. And in verse 15 of chapter 17, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now listen in verse 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Christ is asking God that He would set apart His people who had been given to Him. Set them apart in truth. And in verse 19, he says, for their sake, he consecrated himself. He set himself apart for their sake that they also may be saints, that they may also be set apart, that they may also be sanctified. Set apart for a purpose. Set apart. This is, this is what happened in the temple. When, when utensils were used, they were, they were sacred vessels. They were set apart to be used for the worship of God. This is the same idea of what a saint is. It is one who has been set apart by God for the purpose of giving glory and honor and praise to his name. This is what the essence of being a saint is. It's God's doing, not our own, that we are made saints. We don't make ourselves saints. God does that. We've been set apart, sanctified. Uh, if If you were there when Mark Webb preached on holiness, he preached on being holy. What that literally means is to be Sanctified or to be set apart for something. That's what a Christian is. There is a purpose that God has for saving a people, and it's to bring glory and honor to his name. That's what being a saint is. Romans 6 3 through 5 says, Do you not know? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were taken from one thing into another. Who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were also baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too too might walk in newness and of life we are set apart to something we are set apart to walk in newness of life to bring glory and honor to our savior to our king to our god we no longer belong to sin and to death but we have been made alive and belong to him who has given us life who has set us apart to his service translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. We're no longer dead to God, but made alive and sanctified, set apart, made holy for His service and to His glory and to His honor. Titus 2.14 says, "...who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself." a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. He did this work for us to make us a people of his own possession. We belonged to the world. We belonged to our father, the devil, and he brought us out. He redeemed us from that, set us apart to be his own purchase, his own people. Of course, we even find this in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you and when the lord gives them over to you you defeat and you defeat them then you must devote them to your complete destruction and then for the sake of time he goes through and at the at the last verse verse 6 he says for you are a people holy to the lord your god what does that mean holy to the lord that means set apart to the lord your god this is what it means to be saints What a small word, but what immeasurable meaning that we have in this word. Enormous in its uh, effects. This is not the sainthood of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has this process by which they declare someone a saint. They they have a, a legal type proceeding and they've got a person that... That touts all the benefits of this saint and all that they've done, and then they've got someone called the devil's advocate that tries to rebut these things. And then if they went out, they're declared a saint over time after certain criteria have been met. This is nowhere in Scripture. To be a saint is to be one of God's people. There is no super sainthood. If you are a believer, you are a saint and you are set apart to be God's own possession for his own glory. There is no merit in you. The Catholic Church believes that those saints have an abundance of merit whereby we might draw from their merit and apply it to others. That is a completely blasphemous belief and is found nowhere in Scripture and everything against that is found in Scripture. The merit is Jesus Christ's. And that's it. No one that ever walked the face of this earth except Jesus Christ has any merit of their own. Saints are made saints by God through the merit of Christ and the application of the Holy Spirit. Let me hurry here. Faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, So there are saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Jesus. They are believers in him. They, have a fir- they are firm in their, in their convictions. They are resolute in their reliance upon him and in accordance with his truth and his ways. Their faith is observed by the way in which they live. Their faith has been gifted to them. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith and that itself. That faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. We are not justified by our faithfulness, but our justification is seen and observed by our faithfulness, which in and of itself is gifted and supplied by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ. Let's go on here. Uh, In verse 2, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is a common statement among the epistles, for it is by grace that we understand and receive the undeserved love of God. We receive that which we do not in any way deserve, uh, and grace more abundant even in the gifts that are given by the power of the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit that are given to His people. We've already read in Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace. Saved by grace. This is the grace that Paul longs to send to them. I long for you to have this grace in your life. It's a divine gift. It's not of works or we would eventually boast of it, would we not? It's grace, it's not earned or it would no longer be grace. This is what Paul says when he says grace to you. He says, grace to you, may you experience this grace. May you relish in this grace. May you rest in this grace. For by the working of God, His providence, His plan, through His election in eternity past, through the gift of His Son, through Jesus Christ, through Christ's life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, through the coming of the Holy Spirit and His working to give you a new heart, you are now something different. Old things have now passed away. All things have now become new. You're set apart. You are redeemed for His service. All through grace. All through the gift of God. And peace, He says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. What a tremendous and peculiar blessing belongs to the people of God. There is no other source of true and lasting peace. You'll never find it. This is the outcome. This is the outflowing of the grace. The outflowing of grace is peace. This is the outworking of God's grace and salvation in the heart, the mind, and the life of the believer, that they may have peace. We are set apart to live for him, to cherish him, to be confident in him and what he's provided and what he's done for us. Not in just the coming age, but in this age as well. Because we have experienced as believers his grace. We are resting in the truth of what awaits us in the coming age. No matter what trials and tribulations we go through in this world, we are His and we will be brought into perfect communion with Him in the appointed hour that He has for us. This is not a promise of a trouble-free life. This is not, we are not preaching health, wealth, and prosperity here. This is not the promise of a trouble-free life. But as we go through Ephesians it will be abundantly clear that that is not what our expectation is, that we won't face trials and tribulations. But even through our trials and tribulations, because of the grace that we've experienced in our lives, we might have peace that passeth all understanding. We have peace because of, we have assurance of his love. Look at what he has done for needy sinners. Look at this. Look to what Christ has done on our behalf. If he didn't spare his own son, what else is in store for us? What other gift is there that could ever be greater than that? And then look to the stamp of approval on what Christ has done. God raised him from the dead. He was satisfied. We are told that Christ was the propitiation for our sins. That means he was the satisfaction for our sins. The wrath of God against sin that we talked about earlier. The wrath of God was set aside because it was put on Christ. We as believers do not experience that wrath. Because that wrath was poured out on someone else on our behalf. Well, and where are these things from? They're from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To end out verse 2. Last words of verse 2 from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These things do not flow from fallible man or fallible man's schemes, they don't come from worldly schemes but from the purpose, the plan, and the love of Almighty God, who, as we said last week, is eternal and He's unchanging. Grace to you and peace. It dawned on me the last few days while I was thinking about these things that these two verses here, in a way, foreshadow all of Ephesians. Uh, this, is the, this is first and foremost uh, uh, by the will of God. But as we said earlier in the, uh, in the book, um, it's broken down into two parts. It's broken in, down into the doctrine uh, or the truth of what God has done and then the life as the result of that doctrine. Paul says to the saints, to the saints, to those who have experienced the doctrines in their own lives that they are faithful in Christ Jesus they're saints by the will by the plan and by the acting of god by his grace they are made into something new now what is the result of that faithfulness in christ jesus and then he says grace to you and peace well grace is that which is which we are given grace by which we are saved And what is the outworking of that grace? What is it that is exhibited in the lives of Christians as a result of that grace? It's peace. We learn what it is to be a saint and we learn what grace is about in Ephesians 1 through 3. And then we learn what faithfulness looks like and what peace looks like in chapters 4 through 6. So keep that in mind as you read through this. Um, You know, if you're, if you don't have peace this morning, (laughs) there's one place to look. To have peace, you must have been a recipient of God's grace. So look to Christ if you don't have peace this morning. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the great gift of your grace that we might be set apart Lord, I pray that you would help us to live worthy of that calling. Lord, give us us a burden, give us a heart to be useful to you, to live to your glory and to your honor. Lord, may that be our chief thought as we wake in the morning and our last thought as we go to bed at night, that we might live to your glory and your honor. In thankfulness for what you've done for us, in thankfulness for your gift of salvation, Lord, might we be turned every moment to adore the Son, to love Him for what He's done for us, to, to lift Him high, and to stay on our knees before Him in gratitude. Lord, we thank you for all those that are here this morning. Lord, we pray for those that can't be with us. Lord, bless them where they're at and bless your word, Lord.